Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. All righty then, let's get to it. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn about the art and science of love, how to improve your most important relationships. My first guests today are doctors John Gottman and Julie Schwartz Gottman. They are leading research scientists on marriage and family, authors of the million copy bestseller, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, and the founders of the world-renowned Love Lab. And their newest book is Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. Welcome, Julie and John. Thanks for joining me on the show from frigid northern Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Lisa. We are uh, shivering and shaking with happiness and a little (laughs) bit of cold. We're happy to be with you. Well, I I am really happy to share your beautiful work with our audience. And I want to talk about this book because Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love is based on the principle of eight meaning eight dates, but also I'm looking at this eight and I'm seeing the infinity sign. (laughs) Very good. Yeah, You have good visual acuity. We're (laughs) impressed. (laughs) Talk a little bit about this new book because it takes really a lifetime of work as a couple in your field and translates it into these eight processes that can help us deepen our relationships, not just with our partners, but with others in our lives. Right. You know, we actually tested these eight dates with 300 couples and who recorded their dates. So we got to listen to 2,400 dates. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot of dating. He fell over laughing, actually. But, you know, what we found is that out of 12 dates that we first gave the couples, eight dates were really terrific. Four dates were duds. And so we kept the eight dates. And what we were trying to do, Lisa, is to create a way for couples who were perhaps new in their relationship to ask the more important questions, to get down to the deeper heart of who this other person was and whether or not they really had enough rapport and humor and depth as they were going through the chapters of the book and the different questions to discuss to see whether or not this relationship could be viable. Also, this was for 
couples who'd been together for a really long time, but like so many couples today were so busy that they just had no time to really keep up with each other and had no idea of who the other person was, especially below the surface. So these dates were for those couples as well to restore their connection and love with one another. Well, time, you know, spending quality time is such a, a valuable and important part of maintaining any relationship. Right. You know, there was a study done at UCLA by the Sloan Center of 30 dual career couples in Los Angeles. And it showed that in a typical evening, partners will spend less than 10% of the time in this, even in the same room. And on average, they talk to each other 35 minutes a week which is very little. Most of the talk was about who's going to do what, when, errands. So these deeper, more romantic conversations really kind of go by the wayside. And we wanted to create uh, dates that would sort of serve as a, as a seed to refire curiosity in one another. Let's give a list of the dates. You know, the challenge is there are eight dates here to our listeners here are what they look like. I got them handy. I can chime in or you guys can go because th- yeah. these are great. Share some of these dates. Well, the very first date is addressed to asking questions about how did your parents show one another that they were trustworthy that and they were committed to one another? And how did they fail to do that or how did they do that effectively? And how can I show you that I'm trustworthy and committed to you? So that turned out to be one of our one of our most popular dates. And people really got into talking about trust. And that's one of the big issues that couples have. Um, how, do, how do you keep rebuilding trust? How do you show one another that this is the love of your life? The next date was on conflict. But you know, mind you, we didn't really want people to open up the book and then have a furious fight with one another. That wasn't our goal. This was instead to have couples talk about the style in which they like to solve problems. What's their best way to talk about issues when they have differences, when they have disagreements? So it was really more about your style of preferred ways of resolving conflict and how your parents did that, whether you were doing the same thing here and now, whether you wanted that to change. And the third date is about sex and intimacy. So what what are the good times we've had and you know how can we preserve that? And what what really steps on your accelerator sexually? What steps on your break? Right. And then uh, date four was about money. And, you know, Lisa, money is one of the big issues that people really struggle with. But the reason they struggle with it so much is that money means many different things to many people. Yep. Right. We know that. We know that. So, you know, for example, John, he always gets his ideas at three o'clock in the morning, which is kind of a hassle for me because I like to sleep at three o'clock in the morning. But He got up at three o'clock in the morning one day and he listed out all the meanings of money and he stopped at 100 meanings of money. Wow. And that was based on analyzing 900 arguments that couples had about money in our laboratory. So really money can be about love, connection, competence, power, freedom, 
justice, all kinds of things. And that's where the arguments really happen around what money means. But couples really talk about that underlying sense of meaning about money. Right. Before we go on to number five, I want to touch on the Love Lab, because many people might not know about your Love Lab and and what you do over there. Okay. So, you know, we have a room that looks like a living room and couples uh, sit facing one another and there are cameras all around. Uh, So we get a video of both people's faces, close up of their faces. And um, the video time code is synchronized to physiological measures that we're getting, uh, heart rate, blood velocity. um, We measure respiration, all kinds of things that are going on in the body. So we're able to synchronize the physiology with the video time code. And then we code people's emotions, their facial expressions, how their voice sounds, what they're saying to one another. So we kind of get a record of how people interact emotionally, talking about things like how the day went, talking about an area of of continuing disagreement. And in this laboratory that I designed with my colleague, Bob Levinson, over 40 years ago, we had many couples come into the lab and then followed them, sometimes for as long as 20 years, to see how their relationships changed. And we found we could predict with very high accuracy the future of a relationship from analyzing these data. And that's what the lab is about. But now the lab is about diagnosing problems and getting people into therapy so that they can really improve their relationship. And you've become famous for your ability to predict with 90% accuracy if a couple will get divorced. This is the application of scientific principles and research techniques to the softer side of our relationship. Exactly. And we can analyze sort of sequences of interaction and take a look at how couples kind of get into these negative loops that they find hard to get out of and identify what the principal parameters are that can make the relationship better. You know, part of the Love Lab consequence, Lisa, is that we can really make these predictions in about 15 minutes or so. And once that came out in the public arena, we no longer got invited to dinner ever. So we've been eating at home for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. So if (laughs) any of you really want to invite us out to dinner, we promise we won't judge your relationship. (laughs) See, that would be like, You guys would be a dream day with me and my honey to go out to dinner. I think that would, I think the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Great. Good. Just spread the word. (laughs) That's how I first became familiar with your work. And and what I remember most about reading the, the, the data from the Love Lab was contempt, that when we hold our partner in contempt, that that is one of the predictors of failure. That's our best predictor. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? The other thing that is really incredible about contempt is that it not only erodes the relationship itself, it's one of the worst things in the relationship that can occur. It also is like sulfuric acid to the immune system. which is blows our mind. So, you know, the number of times that a listener will hear contempt in a 15 minute conflict conversation, 
predict strongly how many infectious illnesses that listener will have in the coming year. Which really begs us to stop from it and highlight the importance of our emotional and mental fitness to our overall physical fitness and longevity. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's really not so simple to do things in a different way. Saying things uh, that you need in a positive way is simply saying, I feel something, I feel upset about what, not about a personality flaw of the partner, but about the situation itself that you're upset about. And then what do you need? Not what don't you need, but what do you need that will help your partner to shine for you? That's Mm. what it takes to really create change in a relationship that is struggling with some distress. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to return to the conversations with Julie Schwartz Gottman and John Gottman about their newest book, Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, to learn more about the Gottman's work. And I really, 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 really recommend that you head on over to Gottman.com. And on Twitter, you can connect at Gottman Inst. And that's I-N-S-T. And on Facebook, the page is Gottman Institute. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. I have the great honor of speaking with Dr. John Gottman and Dr. Julie Schwartz Gottman. We're talking about the art and science of love, how to improve our most important relationships. Let's rejoin the conversation. So Julie and John, I know you're coming to us from Washington State where you're freezing. And and I know that you're sidled up next to one another, keeping each other warm as we speak. (laughs) Right, right. That's right. We've run out of propane, Lisa. So we have no hot water, no heat. Uh, We do have an oven that's wide open. So we're doing well. (laughs) And you have each other. And we do have have each each other. other. Right. So we're talking about the, the predictors of relationship health. And in the first segment, we were talking about contempt as being one of the most valuable and important predictors of our relationship health. Give us another that would be to the positive side that when you look at a couple and you say those two, they've got it. Yes, they may have their conflicts, but they've got that spark that validates that this is a good union. Probably the most important thing is what we call turning toward. And the idea being that you notice when your partner is trying to connect with you, wants to talk about something, something important, wants to get your attention, your interest, and that willingness to really turn toward your partner and connect characterizes really great relationships. Not 100% turning toward, but 86% in relationships that last compared to only 33% of turning toward your partner when your partner has a need in relationships that wind up in breaking up. And when, sorry, I interrupted you, Julie, but I was just going to say, elaborate a little more on turning toward. Is it the physical turning toward or the verbal turning toward? 
Uh, you read my mind, Lisa. That's <laughs> I'm sorry. I jumped very in. Very <laughs> good. No, that's exactly right. That's the perfect segue. It's what I wanted to say. So when we say turning toward, we're not just talking about physical turning toward. What we mean is something as simple as one person looking out the window over the sea, maybe, and saying, wow, look at that beautiful boat out there. And the other person can do one of three things. He or she can either say, wow, you're right. That is beautiful. Looking out, that's turning toward. Or the person can say nothing, which is turning away. That doesn't work. Or that person can turn against, which would mean something like, would you stop interrupting me? I'm trying to read. So what we're really looking for is somebody just going, huh, that is beautiful. That's all it takes. It's just a small little gesture of words or perhaps touch that indicate that person is interested in the speaker and wants to respond to that speaker. That's turning toward. Exactly. There are small moments, but they add up. Over a year, those moments can fill a Russian novel. Yeah. Oh, no, not a Russian novel, honey. Maybe a French one. Russian <laughs> novels can be very depressing. Oh, okay. <laughs> but they're big. That's what I meant. Oh, that's true. They are. So it's these tiny little touch points, these series of contacts during the day, even if we're not with our partner. It might just even mm-hmm. be a text of a little heart or whatever, just some little something that you're on my mind, you're in my heart. Right. Yeah, that's a lovely thing to do. Right. Simple. Mm -hmm. Very, very simple. And we often forget to do these things. Let's go back to the dates because we ran through dates one through four, trust and commitment, addressing conflict, sex and intimacy, work and money. And now we come to date number five. Right. So date number five is about family. And these questions address for each person, what kind of family do you want to have? What kind of family did you grow up in? Did you grow up in with parents or with caretakers, with grandparents, only one person perhaps there for you? What did you grow up with? What were the strengths and the challenges of that? And what do you want to bring into our family? Now, family sometimes can mean having children. Do you want to have kids or do you want to have grandkids? But it can also mean the two of us. It can mean our chosen family, that is our circle of friends. It can even include the whole community as our one big family. So people each are defining what family means to them and their ideal family, what that would look like. And when we look at today's modern family, the beauty of the period of time in which we live is that we get to select who we love and how we love. Amen. You know, amen to that. Amen. Yes. Yes, that's right. So so the complexion of family is very, very different today than it was, let's say, 40 or 50 years ago. Exactly. True enough. The cleavers are not not in that house. (laughs) (laughs) No, apparently not. Oh, my gosh. Maybe, uh, I don't know what, Ricky Nelson and, and I don't know, who was the... Little Beaver, Little Beaver Cleaver and Ricky Nelson are hanging out maybe in a yeah, house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which would be wonderful. <laughs> 
So, um, you know, there's all kinds of families. We have freedom today like we haven't ever experienced it before. And it's so joyous to open up the conversation uh, for people to talk about family and for those folks to hopefully embrace the freedom that family can look like whatever they want it to be. And I just want to touch on this a little bit more deeply because when I work with same-sex couples, their hopes and dreams and aspirations for their their lives are no different than heterosexual couples. Yeah, that's absolutely right. As a matter of fact, my research uh, dissertation was on adult daughters of lesbian moms and how they compared to adult daughters raised by either heterosexual moms who had remarried after a divorce or who were raising their children single. I was challenging the court custody situation where kids were taken away from parents if it was learned that the parents were either lesbian or gay. So uh, it was the first study of adult daughters of lesbian moms to be done in the country as to how they actually, in reality, turned out. And of course, they were doing just fine, (laughs) just fine, which turned around the court custody situation. Um, Thank God, so that the people, both gay men, uh, bisexual people, transgender people, lesbian people, anybody could embrace children, have their own children if that was their desire. Which is the core message of all of this, that love is love and we thrive in and through love. Exactly. Right. Now, the sixth date was one of my favorite because it's on fun and adventure. Yes. And, And it turns out that, you know, people eventually kind of ignore fun and they ignore adventure. And so we wanted to rekindle the conversation about this. What have been the greatest adventures in your life? What does fun mean to you? And so, it, again, in this state, we're sort of having people explore this area that often goes to die in a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> we forget right. to play. Right. We forget to play. That's right. John and I have a a wonderful uh, difference between us in fun and adventure in that I like to climb mountains and John likes to sit in his easy chair and read physics. And (laughs) he gets altitude sick on a ladder. And the higher I go, the better I feel. She's an athlete and I have a lever on my chair that gets stuck every now and then and it's challenging. <laughs> so that dominant hand, the strength is in that, you know, from the pulling right. of the lever. <laughs> I know. He's, right. It's really great. He's got a really strong uh, right wrist <laughs> and hand. That's, that's about it. But it's, it's wonderful. So we finally figured out how he could use his right hand and right wrist and we could go outside and have fun. And kayak. Which is kayaking. So uh, we out, we could have fun kayaking. Yeah. I get it. It plays to both strengths, right? The love of nature and, and John's strong right hand. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's wonderful. Okay. Then we go on to date number seven, which is about growth and spirituality. This is one of my favorite dates where we're not just talking about religion. We're talking about the fact that every person seeks to evolve in one way or another. Every single person is also a philosopher, no matter what their education or their IQ or any other cue. And they have needs to evolve, to grow, to embrace what they consider the sacred or the divine around them, though they may not use those words. They seek to connect with the world around them in deeper ways. How does each person do that? That's what the conversation is about. How does each person do that? And perhaps if they've been together for decades, how has that changed for them over those decades? Yeah. And, and spirituality is not something that the average couple talks about, right? It's private. It's personal. You might have your religious practices, you know, or your, tra- mm-hmm. your, your cultural traditions, but we don't often engage in that conversation. So I can see how that would be very important. What, yeah. What do you consider sacred? Yeah. And it could be, could be really preserving the planet. It could be about nature. It could be about other, other kinds of things, ethics. Uh, there's so many topics that people can talk about and explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the last date um, is about dreams. And this is also one of my favorites because it opens up the landscape for people to envision what if they could have any adventure they wanted, if they could fulfill any mission they wanted out there in the world, if they could grow in some particular way to become some new part of themselves, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. That's dreaming. Yeah. And most most people are so tied to the everyday tidbits of task that they have to do. They don't give themselves the freedom to soar and dream. And that's what we're trying to help people do in this chapter. And when we know our partner's dream, we can help nurture it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The notion that this book is the result of decades of your research and Really, what you're giving people are the practices. Yes, you're, you're coming at this from, you know, backing it by the research, but you're saying, you know what? Let us, let us give you the experience. Go ahead and try this and you're going to have an experience that is unique, that is going to open up pathways between you and your partner, which allows them to want more, more of each other. Exactly, Lisa. I mean, I think it's so cool to write a book that's not just a book with information, but it's really an experience. We open the door to new things, yes, to fire up curiosity in one another. Mm-hmm. And let me just mention that this book is also co-authored by Doug Abrams and Dr. Rachel Carlton Abrams, who are two wonderful, dear friends of ours. And the four of us sitting together, writing this book, creating the chapters, telling our own personal stories that would become part of the book was also a great adventure and great fun. It was a great experiment for us. And do something brand new with all the research that we've done. And there was also another person involved, Lara Love, 
who did much of the writing as part of the book. And it, it was a delight to work with them. So this was a collaborative effort that has brought, you know, decades of your research and work and interactions with couples who come, who come to the Institute and come to the Love Lab to triage their relationships, learn more about life and their love and, and connection. And you've got, I mean, there's, there's a plethora of resources on your website, knobgottman.com, right? There's lots of stuff over there. And plus you can even right. take workshops, which is so cool. That's right. There's couples workshops that are actually given all over the country as well as in Seattle. And we also train clinicians in the therapy methods that we do all over the world internationally. And there's lots of fun products. There's lots of stuff that we've tried to create for couples to help restore and really revitalize relationships. This is going to be one of my like new wedding gifts. Like when I give the crystal <laughs> this <laughs> wedding season, I'm also right. going to like li- line the box with this. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's good great. to know. That's good to know. Thank you. Oh, thank you. The book we've been talking about is Eight Dates, Essential Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. My guests today have been Julie Schwartz-Gottman and John Gottman. They are the founders of the Gottman Institute and the Love Lab. To learn more about their magnificent work, please visit, as I mentioned before, Gottman.com. On Twitter, you can meet up with them at Gottman, I-N-S-T, and on Facebook, That page is Gottman Institute. Thank you both from the fullness of my heart for hanging out with me this frigid morning. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much, Lisa. It was really a pleasure to be with you. Lots of fun. Thank you. We will be right back and we'll carry on the conversation about the art and science of love with my next guest. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about the art and science of love, how to improve our most important relationships. My next guest is Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, who is a professor and vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. He has provided insight on psychiatric issues for the United States Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Commerce, and the Office of Drug and Alcohol Policies. He's also discussed mental health in interviews on CNN, C-SPAN, and PBS, and he is a returning friend and guest to the show and the author or co-author of The Molecule of More, How a Single Molecule in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity, and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. Welcome back, Dr. Lieberman. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be back. Oh, I, I am excited to jump right in here because... To me, love is powerful medicine. It sure is. Why is that? 
You know, some people have said that love is the most intense experience that human beings have. When we fall in love, it seems as if we enter into a new world. It's a world that's completely different. It is a shocking and surprising experience. Often we experience things we never even believed were possible. And from my point of view, I am very interested in what on earth is going on in the brain to give us these intense feelings. You know, when the love lights go on, it's almost like we are punch drunk. It is. You know, a lot of the same things that go on in the brain when we're in love are similar to what happens when we get drunk or take drugs. It really lights things up in one of the most pleasurable ways possible. And when we talk about this this intoxicated feeling, I think there's also something that goes along with that that is more intellectual in that we believe that well, maybe it's not intellectual, but, but we believe that all things are possible. Like when we're newly in love, we're like, oh, yeah, life is good. Anything good can happen. Yes, that's right. It's not only something that affects our emotions. It's how we see the whole entire world. And you're right. It, it, it's almost like having your eyes open for the first time and seeing a new world. In fact, I think in the Disney film Aladdin, when Aladdin and Princess Jasmine are flying together on their <laughs> flying carpet, they've just fallen <laughs> in love. And what's the song that's being sung? A whole new world. Yes. And it is a whole new world. Love does open up a roadmap to lots of goodness. I mean, there's, there's a downside to it as well, right? Because we can become love addicts. Yeah. And not only that, but unfortunately, it isn't exactly a whole new world. We, we do get this feeling that anything is possible, that we have found the person who is going to transform our life and things will never be the same because, as you said, anything is possible. And that's a wonderful feeling and it's a great way to start off a long-term relationship. But it can be a little bit painful when we have that hard return to reality. Yes, when the burping and farting and fights start. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> it's true though, right? Like we we I we idealize and idolize our mates when we're in that the intoxication period. And then when the um the buzz wears off and we start to see the other person for who they really are or have disappointment that they're not who we thought they were or want them to be, then we can get into a little trouble. It's true. And, you know, sometimes I wonder whether that period of idealization is a good thing or a bad thing. And I think it can be both. If you speak to some couples who have been together for many, many years, they've gotten past that idealization stage. But they will often say that when they look at their loved one, they can see a little glimmer of it. And they're reminded of the passion that they experienced. So that's an example of it being a good thing. But in other situations, I think that for people who are perhaps a little bit less thoughtful about the whole issue of human beings and human relationships, it's not so good because it's such a disappointment when that idealized being reverts back to being a normal human person. I got to ask you a little bit of a personal question and you can choose not to answer it. Um, you've got a, a long-term partner. I do. I've been married for, um, boy, I think more than 30 years. 
So when you look at your wife, do you at times see that young girl, that young woman that you fell in love with and go, gosh, that's amazing. She's amazing. You know, I am very lucky because that does happen to me a lot of the time. She was the first person that I fell in love with. And as we've been talking about, it was an absolutely magical moment. I didn't know it was possible to have those kinds of feelings for another person. And it seems like it was such an intense experience that it carved pathways in my brain that still reverberate to this very day. So yes, I'm one of the lucky ones. I can see echoes of that idealized figure. And I think it it helps bring us close together. And I think in many ways, it makes the relationship easier because when things go bad, you remind yourself of just how good things could be. And it gives you hope and it gives you motivation to get that relationship back to the best place it can possibly be. Which leads me to the next question. Besides wanting to acknowledge um, your luck, and, and that is a beautiful thing because I have that too in my relationship. But I want to talk about the why because dopamine is so important in this love process because it does tap into that possibility thing, right? Right. Talk a little bit about that. As we spoke about last time we spoke, the brain tends to divide the world up into two rough areas. That is the present and the future. And we can trace that back to human evolution. The present is what we have right now, right here. The future is what we don't have. And from an evolutionary point of view, it's typically what we need to survive. The old saying, either you have it or you don't, for our evolutionary ancestors, could very easily become either you have it or you're dead. So dopamine is the brain chemical, the neurotransmitter, that evolved to orchestrate our thinking about the future. And so the future isn't real. So it not only helps us think about what's going to happen, it helps us think about what might happen. It helps us abstract. It helps us dream of worlds that are so much better than what we have now. And that's what happens when we fall in love. Falling in love to some degree is about being in the present moment with the beloved. But as you pointed out, a lot of it is how your life is going to change. We never realized just how good this life could be. And from now on, we're going to live this perfect existence with the person we love. That's all in the realm of dopamine. And so it's the dopamine that gives us the energy, the motivation, the excitement, and the enthusiasm to pursue the hard challenges that give us a better future. With love, All of that hard work in some ways is done for us and we just sit back and enjoy the ride. But it doesn't last forever, right? And then the other shoe drops. That's right. It doesn't last forever. Helen Fisher, who is an evolutionary anthropologist and specializes in this area, estimates that on average, this kind of love, which we might call passionate love, only lasts about 12 to 18 months. Hmm. Yes. And then what? And then we find ourselves staring at the other person if we haven't been busy cultivating other aspects of the relationship. Saying what on earth happened? Who is this ordinary mortal 
who used to be a god or a goddess. Yes. And that is a critical point in the relationship that in many cases it brings the relationship to an end, but ideally it can lead to a transformation of the relationship into something just as satisfying, but much longer lasting. Which is companionate love. It's companionate love. That's right. That's where the relationship moves out of the future, the possible realm of dopamine, and moves into the present. We use a whole different set of brain circuits, a whole different set of brain chemicals, and we experience it in a very different way. I want to go back to a second for the falling in love period and the um, the phase of motivation, confidence, anticipation, excitement, and of course, you know, super, super, uber, uber pleasure. But it's also the, about that being pregnant with possibility, right? The connection with that person and the possibility of what could happen is very delicious. It's very, very enticing. And it, it's almost like it motivates us to push forward and we don't have to think about taking the jump out of the plane when we go skydiving, right? It, it, it does it for us. The dopamine does it for us. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, jumping out of the plane. It's a terrifying experience to think about making a long-term or even lifelong commitment to another person. Who knows what's going to happen, who we're going to be in 10, 20, 30 years. In some ways, it seems like almost an irrational thing to bind yourself to another person permanently. And I think that that feeling of endless possibility, that feeling that dopamine gives us is what enables us to take that leap. And something just occurred to me, we're going to need to take a break, but before we do, is that if we have had challenges when we're young or we don't have a good model and we gravitate towards self-medication to get that dopamine release, we don't have to actually roll up our, our sleeves and jump in and do the work required for the relationship or the, uh, that falling in love period is so scary to be connected to another person, surrendered to another person. It's true. It, it's true. People who are lacking important developmental support when they are growing up will often turn to drugs as a way of soothing themselves, as a way of finding meaning that is easier than doing the hard work. And that gives them a dopamine rush that in some ways is analogous to falling in love or having different kinds of success in the world. And one of the biggest problems that drug addicts face is that they don't have not only romantic relationships, but relationships of any kind, because drugs have been a substitute for all kinds of developmental hard work that people would ordinarily do. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman about the book that he has co-authored, The Molecule of More, How a Single Molecule in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity, and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. To learn more about Dan Lieberman's work, please head over to moleculeofmore.com, on Twitter at Molecule of More, on Facebook, Molecule of More, and the hashtag is Molecule of More. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. That's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble. 
Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. We're talking with Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman about the art and science of love, how to improve our most important relationships. Let's get back to the conversation. So prior to the break, we were talking about what happens when we fall in love, how dopamine affects the brain, and how when we do not have good modeling or have an experience of Love, we may gravitate towards other substances or behaviors that generate that same dopamine reaction in the brain. So, Dan, talk a little bit about, you know, we talked a smidge about addiction, but talk about how that evolves into other areas of addictive behaviors and tendencies. Sure. You know, there's this kind of puzzling phenomenon going around, and that is that for young people, it's never been easier to access casual sex. We've got all kinds of apps like Tinder, all kinds of ways that people can hook up. And yet what we find when we survey people is that young people are actually having less sex than ever before. And this has become something of a mystery. One of the solutions that have been proposed is the power of pornography. Like drugs, there are aspects of pornography that can become addictive. And one of the things that makes a drug or an activity addictive is how accessible it is. So, for example, cocaine in some ways is much more addictive than alcohol, but alcohol as a drug use problem is a much more serious problem simply because it's so much more accessible. Now, it used to be not so very easy to get pornography. Right? You had to go to the drugstore. You had to take a very deep breath, hope that the <laughs> clerk was not a member of the opposite sex. It, it was an ordeal. Now that's not true anymore. Right? You just fire up your computer and images, videos, now even virtual reality are available in privacy at the click of a mouse. And Studies have shown that pornography can have negative effects on relationships. People who consume a lot of pornography have less sex. They feel less emotionally intimate to their partner. And we're even seeing situations, um, this is particularly prominent in Japan, where young people are giving up dating completely because it's so hard, it's so emotionally risky in terms of rejection, it's expensive, and they're getting all of their gratification through pornography. 
Which reminds me of that film, Her. It was done, uh, the American version of it was with Joaquin Phoenix several years ago, and he falls in love with an operating system. Yes, yes. Which is based on a real thing in Japan. I'm worried about it, to be honest, because human beings are fundamentally imperfect. Being in a relationship is is wonderful. It can be deliriously enjoyable, but it's also hard. Um, once we start having these artificial intelligences, once we start having these sex robots that that are always different, they never demand anything. I think that we're going to have to take a long, hard look at what is going to continue to keep people in real human relationships. I agree. But it is the, it is often the struggle with your partner, with one's partner that, and the triumph over that struggle that then leads us to more of these feelings of love, connection, little dopamine spikes, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I know when Christopher and I have been together for many, many years, we actually knew each other when we were in undergraduate school, went our separate ways, came back together. But in my mind's eye, I'm still seeing that 20 some odd year old boy, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, when you mention the struggles and overcoming the struggles, it raises the issue of personal growth. Yes. And, and I think that in some ways you have to ask yourself, what is the fundamental purpose of life? Is it to maximize the amount of pleasure or is it to grow and, and realize your full potential, uh, both in a material sense, but also in a spiritual sense? And growth is simply not possible without facing and overcoming challenges. Right. It's not possible with a robot or an operating system. I would say that it's growth and it's contribution. And when you're sitting in the confines of your own space, um, pleasuring or uh, articulating your own expression of sexuality, you're not in the contribution phase. That's right. That's right. It's absolutely a selfish activity. You're focused only on your own needs, uh, your own desires, and probably not a healthy thing long term. And, you know, People use pornography from, in addition to the obvious reasons, as an escape from connection with others. I think that's right. Connection can be frightening. You know, we, we present what Carl Jung called the persona from the Greek word mask. We present a mask to the world, uh, a mask that shows only the parts of ourselves that we are comfortable with. When you start to have an intimate connection with someone, they're going to see through that mask. They're going to see through to the parts of you that you are not so very comfortable with. And that can be frightening. But, but I tell you, it can also be a wonderful experience because if somebody sees that part of you and then accepts it, that can allow you to accept yourself more. So you've got to take risks. You've got to put yourself on the line. But it, it, it can lead to these wonderful transformations uh, in how you view yourself and how you view other people. And ultimately, because we are hardwired for this love, connection, belonging, and mating, when we achieve this um, a contented companionate love, it feels like you can really go out and conquer the world, at least in my own experience. Yes. And that's a good point. 
we are hardwired to have long-term relationships, just like swans and prairie voles. They mate for life. We are that way too. I think that the World Health Organization did a survey and found that over 90% of people in the world have been married at least once by the age of 40. And we think, well, you know, evolution, especially for men, ought to code us to sleep with as many partners as possible, to get our DNA as widely distributed as possible. But it's not true. That's not how we developed. We have circuits and chemicals in our brain that are specifically developed to binding ourselves to one person long term. Let's talk about those chemicals. So the most common one that we talk about is oxytocin. This is a drug, I'm sorry, a chemical uh, that is released. Yeah, it's, it's kind of yeah. druggy, you know. It's a nice drug, yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's been called the cuddle chemical, the yeah. cuddle, cuddle drug, which is only one half of it. It, it. it has a very, very positive side. It's also got a negative side that we can talk about if we have time. But at any rate, it is released during sexual climax. It is also released when a woman nurses a baby. And it gives you a feeling of merging with the other person in which two people become one. And do we get a little bit of it when we have one of those big, juicy hugs that causes us to have that sort of letdown breath? We do. We do. I think that those big, juicy hugs may be more related to endorphin which is also plays a very important role in long-term relationships. You know, the pleasure you get from dopamine is an exciting pleasure. It's full of enthusiasm and hope. But the dopamine pleasure is also associated with the feeling of, I want more. When we're passionately, <laughs> right? when we're passionately in love with someone, we can never get enough of them. It's more, 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 more. The pleasure that comes from endorphin, the chemical of companionate long-term love, is a different kind of pleasure. It's a pleasure of contentment and satisfaction. Uh, the pleasure of saying, this feels so good. I just want this thing to go on exactly the way I have it now. Yes. And it also reminds me of if you've ever had a really, really good workout, that sort of endorphin release where you're like, Oh man, that's good. I j I'm feeling great. I, I can conquer the world today. Yeah. And not only that, but you don't, you don't feel like, Oh my God, what do I have to do next? What do I have to do next? With that post-workout endorphin rush, you can just be, you know, you can just sit quietly and just enjoy the way a healthy body feels. We are out of time, Dan. That means you have to come back again for more, 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 more to talk <laughs> more fantastic. about the molecule of more, how a single molecule in your brain drives love, sex, and creativity, and will determine the fate of the human race. To learn more about the book and the work of Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, please visit moleculeofmore.com, on Twitter at Molecule of More, and on Facebook, Molecule of More. The hashtag is, of course, molecule of more. Dan, we have so much more to talk about. So you have to come back and do more, please. I would love that, Lisa. All right. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. John Gottman, Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman, and Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, wishing you all kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. 
Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.